0: Great and holy God, we thank you for the many material blessings that we have been showered with. We pray that you would use these gifts for your glory and for the furtherance of your kingdom. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please remain standing now for the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Deuteronomy, beginning in verse 12. Chapter 5, verse 12, Deuteronomy, let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's Word. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God has commanded you, To observe the Sabbath day. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, which is truth, and who has called us to engage in the study of that word. We pray that you would sweeten this word in our hearts, that together we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us, and that we might honor you more along the path of life, praying in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, we're in somewhat of a series on the Ten Commandments, a series on Deuteronomy 5, verses 6 through 12. We've looked at verses 6 through 10, recognize the Lord as one. No other gods, no worshiping them, no serving them, and no images because Jesus is the true image of God and in him you are being restored into that image. We also looked at verse 11, where the Lord's name well. And we realized that taking the Lord's name in vain isn't just a matter of using the Lord's name in cussing. But in fact, any time we violate any of the commandments of God, we are taking His name in vain because we are professing that He is Lord, but we are living quite to the contrary. Well, this morning we are going to look at verses 12 through 15, a sermon which I have entitled, uh, Observe the Lord's Day. Now you might notice that the title of the sermon is not Observe the Sabbath." Uh, in spite of the fact that we started in our reading uh, observe the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Why do we call it the Lord's Day? Uh, it's appropriate to refer to it as the Sabbath, but, but why, do, why is the sermon title the Lord's Day? Well, I did notice in the back of the bulletin, this isn't the reason why the <laughs> title has its sermon, but um, there is a nice welcome. We welcome you to... Uh, Christ the King Presbyterian Church, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA. We are delighted to have you with us this Lord's Day. It's quite common in the church to refer to uh, the first day of the week as the Lord's Day. But why? Well, there are a number of reasons, and I won't go into them in detail. But uh, first and foremost, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Mark 12, verse 8. And when Jesus comes, many things change. Many things change in the life of God's people. Many things change in the world. Because when Jesus comes, the kingdom comes. The kingdom comes in its fullness. That which had long been anticipated finally arrives when Jesus arrives. And so we're not surprised when some things change. And Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. It's interesting that in the book of Revelation, the first chapter in the 10th verse, uh, it's reported that John was in the Spirit. But it doesn't say John was in the Spirit on the Sabbath because people would have probably thought that was the Jewish Sabbath, the last day of the week. It says that John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And everybody would have known that that's the first day of the week not the Jewish Sabbath. It was the first day of the week. Why the first day of the week? Because that's the day of resurrection. The resurrection is the turning point when Jesus comes forth from the dead. If Christ died and is still in the grave, our faith is in vain. But because Jesus has not only lived for us and died for us, but been raised for us, everything is new. Heaven has come to earth in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's why the first day is the day of grand celebration. It's the Lord's day, the day of the Lord's resurrection. It's the day when the early church gathered around the Word and around the Lord's Supper, around baptism, around prayer. We read about this in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, and we'll take a look at that verse momentarily. The church gathering on the first day of the week, the day of resurrection, the Lord's day. Well, I want to just ask the text that is before us two questions, and that is, how do we observe the Lord's day? And the text actually gives us two answers. Uh, You'll notice that it says, observe the Lord's day by keeping it holy. There's our first answer. And that observe is is an imperative. And there's only one more imperative in the text, and that is down in verse 15 when it says, remember. And so those two texts in particular give us a clue as to how we observe the Lord's day. By, By keeping it holy... We're going to look at what that means. And by remembering, those are the two things to take away. We observe the Lord's day by keeping it holy and by remembering. Now, what's the meaning of keeping it holy? This is a strange concept for us because we are New Testament Christians and we perhaps have read about the Old Testament world, but we've never lived there. Uh, if, if, any of you, if any of you come from a, a high church background, if any of you watched the funeral yesterday on television, you got a little bit of a glimpse, a little bit of a glimpse of kind of Old Testament-ish. H- have you ever wondered why Presbyterian worship and, say, Roman Catholic or Anglican worship is so different? I'll give you a short answer to it. That worship is rooted in the temple, and our worship is rooted in the synagogue. You see, what what do Roman Catholics call their minister? A priest. That's the Old Testament. Uh, Did you notice that there was a sprinkling of water? Old Testament. Did you notice that there was um, uh, use of incense? These are all things that were part of Old Testament worship. Um, I won't go into any more detail than just that, that that high church worship is rooted in the temple. Low church Protestant worship is rooted in the synagogue. And in the synagogue, uh, which is where the church was born, you basically did uh, three things. You prayed, uh, you sang, and you had the scriptures read and explained. That's what our worship service by and large looks like, doesn't it? But if you come from that high church background, you have a sense that is something like the sense that Old Testament saints had, that we who come from low church don't quite have. This separation between the holy and the common. The holy and the common. I'll give you an illustration from a story in the Old Testament. One time David was on a mission with his men. It was a secret mission. And when he was on this mission, he and his men were hungry, and they came to this town called Nob. And there was a priest there at Nob. And the Ark of the Covenant was there. And so David said to the priest, we're hungry, do you have any bread for us? And the priest said, I only have holy bread. I don't have any common bread. Now, this didn't mean that the molecular structure was any different. Holy bread and common bread, if it could have been analyzed by modern science, would have been the same bread. But holy bread was common bread that had been set apart for a special use. We don't quite have a sense of that very profoundly in our lives. Everything to us is very, very common. I would invite us to begin to think the opposite, that everything in our lives is very, very holy. Uh, Zechariah says the day is coming with the coming of Christ that even the bells on the horses are going to have holy to the Lord stamped on them because when Jesus comes, the kingdom comes, and the kingdom is a kingdom of holiness, and so everything becomes holy an invitation not to live an ordinary, common, mundane life, but to realize that we live uh, in a holy uh, sphere uh, by God. Now, in the Old Testament, there were a couple of holy domains in particular. There was, see, that, see God is saying, are you paying attention? <laughs> see, he has, his, he has his ways of getting you to listen to me. I remember one time I was, we were at St. Andrews and R.C. Sproul was preaching on hell. And he was just about to make the fieriest point. And right then there was the loudest clap of thunder. <laughs> and he just paused and said, you better pay attention. <laughs> so there, there were holy spaces. Egypt was not holy. Assyria, Babylon, Moab, Edom, they were not holy. But the land of Israel between Moses and Jesus was the holy land. And Jerusalem was the holy city. And the temple was the holy spot. There were spaces that had been set aside by God from common use to special use. And um, then in terms of time. There were three weeks a year when there were big seven-day holy weeks, annual festivals. And the first day of every month, new moon, was a holy day. And then, of course, the Sabbath, once a week. So annual holy days, and monthly holy days, and weekly holy days. And, and not all days were equally holy. Not all space was equally holy. Just think of the temple. If you and I lived back then because we were God's holy people, we could go into the outer court. We were holy, it was holy, we could go that far. But the priests were holy in a way that we weren't, and so they could go into the inner court, and we couldn't. But the high priest could only go in, because he was specially, specially set apart, he could go into the most holy place only once a year, and that was special sacrifices. You see, the... The closer you get to the presence of God, the more holy things become. The more they get set apart from common to special use. So we observe the Lord's Day by setting it apart for special use. That's the meaning of it. Now, what's the method of it? Well, before I answer that question, I just want to kind of remind you of Two things here. One, we still are in the front part of the Ten Commandments where we're talking about our love for God. And did you notice that we keep the Sabbath, we keep the Lord's Day to the Lord? Now, we often think about, you know, our resting, that sort of thing, what we do, what we don't do. The text says that it's a day that we observe to the Lord. It's the Lord's Day. We observe it to the Lord. It's our love for God that motivates us in our observing the Lord's day. Now, in terms of the method, there are a lot of things that we could talk about with regard to the method of setting it apart. But I want to focus on just two. If you have your uh, order of worship handy, go to the first page and let's take a, a look once again at the Heidelberg Catechism, question 103. Well, it it is the, the Heidelberg is not our Presbyterian tradition, but it's a sister tradition, and we use it a lot as Presbyterians, and we use it here in our worship. It's interesting that all the Catechism questions are broken up into 52 sections, and each section is called One Lord's Day, Two Lord's Day, Three Lord's Day, Uh, for Lord's Day. You have that Lord's Day running throughout the entire structure uh, of the Heidelberg. In question 103, we ask, what is God's will for you in the fourth commandment? And there are two answers that are given. And these are the two things that I just want to focus our attention on for the method. What do you do practically in order to observe the Lord's Day? First, That the gospel ministry and education for it be maintained, and especially on the festive day of rest, I diligently attend the assembly of God's people to learn what God's word teaches, to participate in the sacraments, to pray to God publicly, and to bring Christian offerings for the poor. All the things that we are doing here this morning, I'm preaching to the choir but the choir needs to be encouraged with regard to what it is that it's doing and why it is that it's doing it and the importance of the doing of it. Now let's go to that text that I mentioned. Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. We might ask a more profound question, why does the Heidelberg give this as its first answer? And we could point to a number of texts, but none more clear than Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, notice it's not the seventh day of the week. This is not the Jewish Sabbath. This is the Christian Lord's Day. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Now that breaking of bread isn't the exact same thing as celebrating the Lord's Supper, but it's closely related. In the the New Testament, in in the early church, there were actually two things that went on on the Lord's Day in this regard. There was a big community meal, and then part of that meal, along with that meal, was the celebration of the sacraments. Think of the language that you're familiar with from Corinthians. After the supper, he took the cup. You see, the, the celebration of the Lord's Supper was woven into a meal. And so this breaking of the bread here a, 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 a refers most generally to this whole meal celebration, the community of life among God's people on the first day of the week, part of which would have been the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So here we have, on the first day of the week, the church coming together to observe the sacraments. Paul spoke to the people. There we have the reading and the explanation of the word of God. Uh, because he uh, intended to leave the next day, he kept talking until midnight. Uh, I, I've gone over my time limit once in a while, but, but I, don't even, I, I don't think I've ever transgressed 12 noon, let alone 12 midnight. So be merciful to me. Just remember this text if I ever go a little bit long. But seriously, here we have the church. Here we have the church Uh, observing the Lord's Day on the first day of the week, a high priority for them. A priority to attend the worship of God. Attend the celebration of the sacraments. Uh, Attend the preaching and reading of God's Word. Attend the prayers of God. Attend the praises of God. It's the Lord's Day. And so take delight in the freedom that you have, in the privilege that you have, in the responsibility that you have, to, to do what? As the catechism says, diligently attend the assembly of God's people to learn what God's word teaches, to participate in the sacraments, to pray to God publicly, and to bring Christian offerings for the poor. How do we observe the Lord's Day. In the Old Testament, the sixth day, the the seventh day Sabbath had special worship, and that carries right over into the seventh day Christian Sabbath, as our tradition calls it, or the Lord's Day, when the worship of God and all that attends the worship of God uh, is a high priority to us, it is a delight to us, and it's ever so necessary. God built a six-and-one principle into the world uh, in in creation. And that six-and-one principle applies to us in a number of ways. But here, just think that, that God is giving you extra, extra special nourishment for your souls on the Lord's day but it's nourishment that only lasts for six days. Now, obviously, I'm speaking metaphorically. What you learn here lasts you for a lifetime, yes. But the point is, just as we need to eat routinely, God has designed us so that we observe the Lord's day routinely because it's good for our souls, and what's good for our souls ultimately ends up being glorifying to God. So the first way in which we set it apart. Now it's interesting that the the catechism gives a second way. Secondly, that every day of my life, I rest from my evil ways. Let the Lord work in me through His Spirit, and so begin in this life the eternal Sabbath. A number of the hymns that we sang this morning already, have focused our attention on entering into heaven. And while the language may not have been used, uh, it's the language of entering in to what the catechism calls the eternal Sabbath. There is a rest. There is an eternal rest that is waiting for us. But God is so good, that he gives us a taste of that rest all along the way. And not just on the Lord's day, but notice what it says, every day of my life. That every day of my life, I rest from my evil ways. How many of you... How many of you have, have hurt someone? How many of you have hurt yourself, offended God in one way or another, deeply, profoundly, superficially? It just seems that it's part of life. How many of you can look back and say, oh, if I could only do that one over again? How many of you long for the day when you will no longer Be weighed down and burdened by all of these misdeeds along the path of life. Things that keep you up at night. Things that wake you up early in the morning. Things that trouble you throughout the day. Longing for that eternal Sabbath rest. When all of your sin and the misery that goes along with it will be done and gone, never to be experienced again. What a glorious hope that God has given us, this eternal rest from all of our evil ways. But didn't Jesus say, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done? On earth as it is in heaven. What a gift God has given us that we can begin, be it ever so slowly, be it ever so imperfectly, that we can begin to experience rest from those evil ways every day of our lives. And of course, one of the reasons why we gather here on the first day is to encourage us for the next six days to find rest. That every day of my life I may rest from my evil ways letting the Lord work in me through His Spirit. And so begin in this life a foretaste. Begin in this life to experience what it's like to be pilgrim with that heavy burden rolling off of our backs and rolling into that empty tomb. By attending to the worship of God and by every day ceasing from our evil works. How do we observe the Lord's day? By setting it apart. And the second way, and more briefly, by remembering. Notice, as we go back to our text in Deuteronomy chapter 5, notice that it says... Remember, verse 15, remember. And then in the rest of the verse, it points out two things to remember. Remember your former condition. Never forget. For ancient Israel, that meant that they were to remember what life was like when they were slaves and not free. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt something that probably hasn't been experienced in a literal way by us. But the New Testament unpackages this language in terms of what our former condition was, and that was our slavery to sin. Let's just look at Romans chapter 6 for a moment. Romans chapter 6, in verse 17... Paul says, but thanks be to God that though you used to be, see, former, past, though you used to be slaves to sin. And then if you go over to verse 20, Paul says, when you were past, when you were slaves to sin. You were old creation. You're not anymore. You're now new creation in Christ. But it is good to remember, to remember who you were, your former condition. Enemies of God. Uh, I, uh, I, I listened, this is strange, but I listened to a pipe podcast. Comes out of Jackson, Mississippi. A small pipe shop there that is actually managed by a Reformed Theological Seminary, almost graduate from, uh, as a counseling major. And uh, there was a pipe podcast last week, and it was on, what do you do if, if, um, if your pipe tobacco gets so dry that it's no good anymore? It was on how to revive dried pipe tobacco. And uh, this is a blend, pun intended, <laughs> between pipe tobacco and theology, They started off, the the guy started off by saying, well, the first thing you've got to realize is that this pipe tobacco is dead. This pipe tobacco cannot do anything to rehydrate itself. It can't decide that it needs to be rehydrated. It is dead. You've got to have the tobacconist come along. And he's got to go and say that dead tobacco will live, and he's got to begin. The, and then they be, then they began to say, "I think we've just alienated all of our Armenian listeners." <laughs> but we do need to remember our, our our deadness. I was listening to some music coming down, and there was a song that that I love on an emotional level was part of my upbringing. Um, but it's not part of my current theology. And it was basically, um, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. Very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. The problem is, we were not sinking. We were sunk. We were not going down for the third time. We had gone down for the fourth time. We were dead. Unable to do anything. We've got to rem- it's good for the soul not to dwell there, not to live there, but from time to time to remember from whence we have come. But not only remembering, not only remembering our, our former condition, but then, okay, that's just depressing, remembering what the Lord did for you. As the text says, you were slaves in Egypt, but he brought you out. You didn't come out, he brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Notice in our Romans text how Paul says the same thing. Paul says in, uh, in verse 18, after saying you used to be slaves to sin, he says you have been set free. And then in verse 20, he says, when you were slaves to sin, in verse 22, he says, but now that you have been set free. Yes, you've got to remember your former condition, but you don't live there because that's no longer who you are, that's who you were. Your new creation in Christ, the old has passed, the new has come. You have been set free, set free to be sure, to be a new kind of slave a slave to God, a slave to righteousness, but a slave to a beneficent master who only does things for your good, who seeks only your highest good even when you would be willing to be content with a lower good. He's always at work in everything for your highest good. We observe the Lord's day in a special way because it gives us time to remember, Of course, we need to remember these things every day, don't we? But the Lord's Day is a, a reminder to remember every day what our former condition was and what the Lord has done for us. And how did he do it? Let's just conclude with one text. Hebrews chapter 4 and starting in verse 9. In verse 9, it says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. I don't think this text is saying that we should be Christian Adventists, that we should be observing the, uh, the, the uh, seventh day Sabbath. This is talking about that eternal rest. Uh, in, the, in the broader chapter, it's talking about Joshua bringing them into the land but not really giving them rest because the the rest that they experienced in the land wasn't the real rest. That was only a shadowy rest. It was only a symbolic rest of the real eternal rest. Crossing the Jordan in our hymnody, because in the Bible, crossing the Jordan is entering into the promised land, heaven, our promised rest. There is, you see, hope. There is then, there remains then, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Notice for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. But how can we, because that old nature still has an impact on us and we still do those harmful, hurtful, God dishonoring things, how is there hope that we can enter that Sabbath rest? Well, you've got to read verse 14, and in spite of the fact that in my Bible there's a big heading there that leads you to think we've changed topics, we really haven't. Notice that verse 14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has entered into heaven. Okay, if Jesus entered heaven, and heaven is the eternal Sabbath, what has Jesus entered into? The eternal Sabbath. And you have been mystically united to Christ by grace, alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. You're connected to Christ so that when Christ died, you died in Him. When Christ was raised from the dead, you were raised with Him. When Christ ascended, you ascended with Him. When Christ entered the eternal Sabbath, you entered it. You're already there. Now there's more to come. This is, you're not in heaven in its perfection, but you really are. This is why Paul says, set your hearts on heavenly things and not earthly things because right now you are hidden with Christ in God. You're in heaven. You just are in the process of entering into that heaven in all of its fullness, but you're really there now. You really are new creation. How is there hope? There's hope because Jesus was the perfect Jewish Sabbath keeper. And he kept the entire law in your place, and he died on the cross to pay the penalty for all of, your, all of your lawlessness. And he was raised from the dead so that you might have a right relationship with God, and he's entered into heaven for you and with you so that you might be assured right now this morning in spite of what you see with the physical eye, That you might see with the eyes of your heart that eternal rest that is already yours in Christ. And since it's already yours, what does the text say? If we go back, it says in verse 11, "...let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest." I find that fascinating. That we've got to work hard to rest. You'd think it would say, kick back to rest. Because your entrance into that eternal rest is guaranteed by the perfection of Christ. Oh, that gives you such great encouragement to make every effort now to enter that rest. And one of the ways you do that is by observing the Lord's day. You see, it really is the Lord's day. You observe it to him and you observe it because of him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is a light uh, to our feet, a lamp to our path. And we pray that you would write this word on our hearts, that it might create faith in us, that we might continue to press on, making every effort to enter that rest that Jesus has secured for us. And for this, we will give you the praise now and forevermore. And we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Well, let's respond by standing.